This is a special broadcast of Socolo, a cultural forum for the new Los Angeles. Socolo, which means public square in Spanish, is dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship across ethnic, racial, and partisan lines. Tonight's program features author Joel Kotkin on Los Angeles and the future of cities. In his new book, The City, A Global History, Kotkin discusses the evolution of cities from the earliest origins to the present. He maintains that successful cities have always been three things, places sacred, safe, and busy, and that Los Angeles has a prominent place in modern urban history as the original model for the sprawled, suburbanized city. Sokolo is proud to present an evening with Joel Kotkin. Uh, one of the nice things to be here for a change, instead of speaking elsewhere, is I don't have to defend Los Angeles since you are all familiar with it. Um, it's amazing as you go around the country and you have to deal with urban issues and you say you're from L.A. and people say, well, that's too bad. And, um, and I always say, well, I'm happy to be there. And you know what? I think there are about 10 million people who uh, also feel the same way. So can't be all that bad. But it's been kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of cities. Uh, it doesn't get much respect. And of course, we're used to being dissed by people from my hometown, you might guess, which is uh, New York. But even recently, I've noticed that we also get attacked all the time in all the sort of junior LAs, you know, the places like, like Phoenix um, that, you know, are becoming more and more like LA every day, but don't really want to admit it. And they should really think about our issues and how we've evolved in thinking about their future development because I think LA really is the urban future. People who ignore that I think are short-sighted or deluded. Um, if you miss the story of Los Angeles, what's happening in Los Angeles, what has happened in Los Angeles, you're missing the story of the progenitor of the 21st century city. As one observer once said, LA is the original in the Xerox machine. Um, now, when you, when you make remarks like that, recently I was uh, one of the speakers at this thing called the Harvard Global Cities Conference. And when I mentioned, well, LA is really the model for the city of the 21st century, well, you can imagine, you know, all the guffaws, and they just couldn't believe that anyone could be saying something like that. But the reality is that if you look around the world, these are the new cities. You know, there, there, there's a sense in, among many urbanists, people who s study cities, that a real city has to be defined by several characteristics. It has to be densely centralized. It has to have lots of trains. It has to have gray facades. People have to be depressed. Um, and it has to have well-established, respected elites. It's got to have all those private clubs that are supposed to be where the decisions are made. Or it has to have the salons where all the celebrities hang out. Well, Los Angeles doesn't make it on those bases, I would admit. One, it's very multipolar. Los Angeles is a city of many cities. It is an agglomeration of places, and we'll talk about that. It's car-dominated, and even though we have a nice and improving transit system, it's going to be car-dominated for the rest of my life, the rest of my 10-year-old's life, and probably the rest of the nine-month-old's life. So I think this is pretty clear. It's sunny most of the time. As for the so-called elites the, who pop up over the course of time, uh, they're basically irrelevant or silly, and we don't pay attention to them, nor should we. Um, <laughs> Los Angeles is the way it is because it's different. It's an ongoing experiment in a century-long attempt to resolve the problems that have affl afflicted cities from the beginnings of time, and most particularly since the Industrial Revolution. It is part of an experiment to restore the primacy of the individual household over a mass society. More than anything, Los Angeles represents an attempt to escape the failures 
that grew up particularly of the uh, rapid industrialization of the late 19th century. When you read the book, you'll see references to uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, Frederick Engels, who was uh, partnered in a rock band with a guy named Karl Marx. Um, but Engels is, among other things, a really great journalist. And he reports what those industrial cities in England were like in the mid-19th century and the densities that they had. There was a city like Manchester um, was about three or four times as dense as a medieval city was. The death rates in the city of Manchester were about five times the death rates in the surrounding countryside. So, you know, we always have this nostalgia of the old industrial city. And sometimes, you know, developers will see a, a bunch of old brick warehouses and think, well, how neato. But in reality, things were not really the way that even a great urbanist like Jane Jacobs portrays them. You know, this idea of these many families living in these crowded conditions and, oh, what a great sense of community and how wonderful it was. Well, I'm going to take a different tack because I have a, a different teacher on these matters, my primary urban expert, who was my mother. My mother tells me that growing up in these places wasn't so great. She's 82 years old and she remembers. My grandmother was a seamstress, my grandfather was a, a window washer, and they lived in a place called Brownsville in, in the borough of Brooklyn. Um, and as my mother says, um, I'm not going to use her exact language, uh, it was a crappy neighborhood then and it's a crappy neighborhood now. Um, five kids, two parents, three rooms, not too comfortable. And this was the reality that most urbanists, urban dwellers lived in. This, this is the reality that people had day in, day out. And so basically in the late, latter part of the 19th century, there was a move to try to move away from this model. This was not working for a lot of people. One extreme reaction was the one uh, that uh, took place in Paris. And I always like to make fun of the French because my mother-in-law is from France. But uh, Paris always had the advantage. It was a dictatorship uh, then, and one could say it's a dictatorship now. It's a top-down society. And Napoleon III, taking a look at Paris, could see, you know, there's a real problem here. We have all these messy neighborhoods, and the proletarians every once in a while get a little bit angry, and they have a revolution. And then the, the soldiers have to go into these districts, which are, if you've been to the Marais or any of the old parts of Paris, really a good place to, uh, you know, throw stones at soldiers. So Napoleon III did two things. One, he cleaned up these neighbors. He also kicked a lot of these people out. And then he made these nice wide boulevards. And the nice things about the nice wide boulevards is next time the, the proletarians got upset, they could, they could roll the cannons into the middle of the street and blow them away. And so there was not another revolution. Now that was one solution. There was a different approach that was taken um, here in Los Angeles. And, and that was to try to do something that was not like a Paris or a Beijing, a city planned from above to be a great city. Los Angeles is more the result of individual decisions, amplified by the market and occasionally politics. It wasn't a question of a grand design. People moved to LA fundamentally because they didn't like the traditional industrial city and they wanted to live differently. The founders of Los Angeles, of modern day Los Angeles, may well have been awful people. Um, many of them were racist, they were uncultured rubes and boars, and probably we wouldn't want to have them over for dinner. But they did have the common sense that in building a new city, we weren't going to recreate Brownsville. We were going to do something better. They did not want to recreate Manchester or Chicago. And if they had a model, if anything, it was like Walt Disney, they wanted to base it on the small towns of the Midwest. 
So what came up in Los Angeles was something that was very unique. We ended up building a city that was a great city, but very spread out. And it was a, really based on a notion that had been developed in England uh, in the late 19th century, which was this idea of the garden city, that we would have a city but the city would be married to the countryside. It would be a place where you could still enjoy the trees and, and the flowers, and we wouldn't have to be on top of each other the way we were in the eastern cities. One early uh, Methodist minister, a man named Dana Bartlett, was among those who shared an idea, and he wrote a very um, interesting book, very difficult to get these days, called The Better City. And he laid out what he thought Los Angeles would be. And it, it was a tremendously idealistic version. His idea was we wouldn't put all the factories in the middle of the town and so they would all be belching out smoke and people would have to live right nearby. His idea was we'd move the factories to the periphery and then everybody, even the working class, would have a chance to buy a little home and live on a tree-lined street. Easy to make fun of those ideals um, today, but this was a great realization at the time. And over the next few decades, visionaries like Bartlett, planners, and of course the, the inevitable Los Angeles type, the developer, promoted Los Angeles as a place where people could have gardens and smell the flowers of our irrigated paradise. This was unique about Los Angeles. This is what made Los Angeles so alluring to people. Now, I have to admit we didn't live up to the promise completely. We don't have as many flowers as we should. We don't have as many trees as we should. In the 1930s, we missed a tremendous opportunity to develop open spaces throughout the Los Angeles space in the 1930s Olmsted plan, which we did not adopt. That was a great tragic mistake. We also turned our back on the Los Angeles River, and now it's better for drag racing than for bicycling or walking. So we made a lot of mistakes. But besides those mistakes, we have to say that on a day-to-day -day level, for millions of people in this region, we have been able to create a way of life that in the past very few people in great cities could enjoy. Now, most of our green spaces are limited in the public sphere, but in the private ones we have wonderful open space. We have our backyards, we have our barbecues, we have the courtyards of the apartment buildings. We still have the sense of the nearness of this sort of garden that we live in. This is a notion of a different kind of urbanity one epitomized by multiple centers and the proliferation of single-family homes, and it has had great appeal. It has been replicated throughout the advanced world. One of the things I found very interesting in doing the research on the book is that even in places which do all the things that people who want ever-denser cities advocate, high energy prices, great transit systems, all sorts of planning regulations, almost everywhere, anywhere where people have enough money they are spreading out and trying to live something like we do in Los Angeles. This is true in New York, it's true in London, it's true in Paris, it's true in Tokyo. All these cities, the population movement has been fundamentally heading out for many, many years. Even in China, as it moves up the curve, we're beginning to see the, the construction of Orange County-style tract homes for a new generation of desperate housewives. So what we're seeing is that there is something that's greatly appealing about that to a large number of people. I think it's a sense of autonomy, it's the idea of a little bit of space, and a personal chance to reconnect with nature. But if Los Angeles is everything that's new and modern, and it is the trend, its long-term fate will depend also on how it resonates with certain things that have happened through cities throughout history. 
If we look over the history of cities, and that's over 5,000 years, you can see that Los Angeles, for all its uniqueness, fits a lot of patterns of urban life. It is a city, even if they don't think so at Harvard. And if it f succeeds or if it fails, it will be for the very same reasons that cities have failed or succeeded in the past. That we are new players at this game, having risen from obscurity in a century, that reflects also something in urban history. One of the great urban historians, of the Greek historian Herodotus, noted in the 5th century BC that many of the great cities of his youth had already declined, and that others that were tiny when he was a little boy had become great cities. So there's always this protean nature of urban history. It's always changing and evolving from the city of Ur in Mesopotamia to Los Angeles. So what I tried to find out is, in considering Herodotus and all the records of the history that I went through, what were the factors that made for great cities? What made them work? What made them fail? And I think there were, there were many things that I learned from a lot of great writers who I feel in a way I sort of know in a sort of intimate way because I spent so much time with them. Mumford, Weber, Engels, Perrin, Braudel. But I think the thing that really hit me the most, and I hope it will hit you if you read the book, has been the, the first-person accounts. I tried to reach and see how it felt to be in these cities. Those first-person accounts, the diaries, the memoirs, that really brought me closer to how people saw it. What I learned, first of all, was that cities everywhere and in all times share many basic characteristics. The book starts with the diaries of Bernal Diaz, who is a foot soldier in Cortez's army of conquest. And here's a man from a small city in central Spain who encounters something that while totally alien, is also familiar. You think about this. Here's a, a, a fellow. He's coming into the new world. They haven't found any great cities. He's hearing rumors about this place. They're, they're, they're marching um, from, from the coast, and they, all of a sudden he sees this thing called Tenochtitlan. It's the capital of the Aztecs, and it is a city larger than virtually any city in Europe at the time. But he recognizes something. He sees something that strikes him as incredibly familiar. One, in the middle of the city is a temple. And the temple is the sacred center, just like a cathedral would be back in Spain. Second, it was a fort. It was very well defended. Um, had Montezuma not been such a fool and let the, the Spaniards in, the defenses might have worked a little better. But they had these walls. It was clearly a defensive position. And third, it was a city of commerce with vast markets that reminded some of Bernal Diaz's uh, fellow soldiers as places in Rome and Paris and Venice. So there are the three characteristics of, of cities that I think have driven cities throughout history, what I call the sacred, the safe, and the busy. And these are the things that I think animate cities. And when those characteristics weaken, cities die. When those characteristics get stronger, cities do better. Now, as Bernal Diaz's experience suggests, these elements transcend time and space, and they transcend place, and they transcend race. They are unique to cities at all times. And I think if I contributed anything in this book, I hope that I can get the next generation of students who are going to be, after all, studying cities in an era in which perhaps the greatest city in the world may be Shanghai, or, or Tokyo, or some other place outside of the Western experience, and understand that there is something about cities that is not uniquely Western. Historically, when we've looked at cities, when, we, when you take urban history, generally you start with Mesopotamia, you go to Greece, you go to Rome, you go to the Renaissance, Paris, London, New York, and, oh, by the way, 1700, there's this place called Tokyo. Where did that come from? 
What I tried to do is try to bring that all together and understanding that there were huge periods in, in history when cities in East Asia, Mexico, Africa, and India were much larger and more successful than the ones that were in Europe. So I think what has really happened is that we have just begun to understand what this thing, the city, really is and what makes it go. And that it is not a European phenomena, not an Asian phenomena, not a Mexican phenomena. It is a global phenomena. It is something in the DNA of human beings. Now, what makes a, a city go? And I want to go through the three characteristics. I think most cities have a, at their root a sense of sacred space. I think that that's something that has been almost written out of history. One of the big problems with history today in this postmodernist narrative-dominated historiography that we have, that we tend to erase those things that we don't recognize in ourselves. You know, sort of like during the Soviet Union when every time there was a purge, you know, Stalin would have somebody's picture erased. We've almost erased the role of religion in the history of cities. And yet when you read almost all the original accounts, whether it was Marco Polo or, or Bernal Diaz or Herodotus, over and over again they talk about religion and the role of religion in the cities. If you go to the very earliest cities, they started off with the temples as a center of commerce. The temples were where the calendars were drawn, where irrigation systems were, were devised. Um, the city of Babylon, the first really great city perhaps in the history of the world, gets its name from the words for gate of the gods. Chinese cities throughout um, a long history, going all the way to the forbidden city, were laid out in what they call the cosmic pattern. And capitals throughout Asia really follow the same model. You could see this in Seoul, you can see it in, in, in Kyoto. The Romans and Greeks built their cities around temples and, and identified their cities with their gods. Uh, one Roman historian wrote that Rome was impregnated with religion that when the city of Rome was burned down, and it happened several times, they rebuilt it in the same sacred space over and over again because that space was sacred to the people of Rome. They see this all throughout history, this idea that the city is identified with a sacred space. Very often, as religions changed, they simply went and inhabited the same space. Uh, Cortes, of course, built the great cathedral of Mexico on top of the space where the Aztec temple had been. Uh, it, throughout Christian Rome, the pagan temples, where the pagan temples stood, the great Christian churches were built. Later on, mosques were built, sometimes on churches, sometimes on the, on the pagan temples. But the principle remained the same. This is a very politically incorrect notion in, in many ways, but I think that we need to look at the cities as spiritual beings as well as physical beings. I think that our tendency today because we're so in love with statistics, is to deal with social behaviors as if humans were just slightly evolved lab rats searching for the right narrative. And I, I think that we have to understand that what motivates people in a city, it's, it's very important to understand that's what keeps people going. I'm always wondering why somebody rebuilds a city after it's been destroyed. And there is this sense of this is a sacred space. Now, it's sometimes not totally a religious f feeling, but it is a sense that this is our space. Um, as the French theologian Jacques Ellul noted, it's our response to being kicked out of paradise and now we have to create our own paradise. And so this always con constitutes the fundamental challenge of city dwellers. How do you build a place that works, that replaces those areas that we were expelled from, and how do we create a way of, of ordering a society 
that is made up of diverse people. The, the urban dweller is kind of a new species. Um, unlike the villager or the nomad, he lives outside the clan. He must have rules, a moral order to keep a society together. And that was true in Ur 5,000 years ago, and I think it's true today. The second big characteristic is security, the safety element. That's a fundamental condition for cities. If temples were not the first structures to be built in cities, walls were. The greatness of a city really feeds on the extent of the territory that it controls. Cities tend to be small when they control little territory, like the Phoenician or Greek city-states or the Renaissance cities, and when, they got, when the, the city could control larger areas, leading all the way to ancient Rome, they could get much, much larger. Security is very important today. I was um, in New York City during the 1970s, and anybody who had been there in the early 70s, there was a sense the city was completely out of control, completely unsafe. You know, you'd go into the city, and by the time it got dark, you, boy, you, you know, growing up uh, out on Long Island um, after we moved out of Brooklyn, in part because of crime, and you'd run to the Long Island Railroad, and the Long Island Railroad got th uh, past the East River, there was a sigh of relief because there was menace everywhere in New York. And this was the thing that was killing the city. And some politicians uh, still don't get it because uh, they still think that they can somehow keep a city going and still have lots of crime. I, I was in a city of Baltimore, a very charming city, and they have a very nice mayor named Martin O'Malley who thinks the way he's going to turn around his city is to be hip and cool and attract lots of artists. But there's a problem. What's the point of being hip and cool if you're dead? And that has stopped Baltimore from really reaching its potential. But let's see what happened in New York City. You know, I don't particularly like Rudy Giuliani on a lot of levels, but I have to say he understood that crime was driving business and residents out of the city. The crime reduction that took place was the best thing, not only for the rich, who had always lived in the more secure areas, but more for the poor and for the working class. It did lead to the revitalization of Midtown, but far more important, the revival of neighborhoods in Brooklyn and Queens, which for New York served like the Valley does for L.A. as a critical bastion of the middle class and particularly for upwardly mobile immigrants. So for these reasons, L.A.'s reductions in crime, despite the recent freeway mayhem, is good news all around. If we continue to do this, the prime beneficiaries will not just be my neighborhood in the Valley and other places that have been historically somewhat safer, but the inner city neighborhoods that, freed from the scourge of crime, will have a chance to become more economically attractive and places where families will want to settle, raise children, plant deep roots. They won't have to come in and get out as soon as they can. Finally, there is the, the idea of commerce, the idea of keeping a place busy. Great cities from Phoenicia to Greece to East Asia and the Islamic world all expanded to the extent that they traded and produced goods. Since the great commercial revolution that started in the 17th century, commerce has emerged as a primary driver of all cities of modernity, from Amsterdam and London to Tokyo and Shanghai. All Los Angeles is a great example of this. Uh, unlike um, most of the other major cities in California, LA started as a pueblo, not a mission. Mana was, has always enjoyed an equal status with Hosanna in this town. Uh, this has always been a commercially oriented city. Unfortunately, there are many people today, many politicians today, who forget this important notion of what cities are about. And they think that they're going to make a city work by making it a sort of a, a bazaar, a, a, a tourist attraction. They're going to build more stadiums and more concert halls and splashier museums, and that's going to make a, a great city. 
in a way, they're sort of taking their, their cue for urban development from the Roman Emperor Commodus, bred in circuses, um, and probably if they could do gladiatorial combat, they'd do that too. This is a tragic mistake, because what makes a city great is not how fashionable it is, how hip it is, but how it retains its middle-class families and jobs. Cities need to be able to maintain that. We do not want to see a city that becomes rich and poor. You see that in a place like San Francisco, a, a great city where I had my first job. And as um, one friend of mine says, San Francisco has now become a theme park for restaurants or a cross between Carmel and Calcutta. Um, I don't think that's where we want to go in Los Angeles. I even think that, that there are cities that, that they, sometimes they call me and say, well, we're going to be hip and cool. You know, we're going to import things, so we're going to bring gay people to, uh, to Oklahoma City. I mean, now, and they say, well, you know, we're going to have this hip, cool district, and they're, they're all going to want to come start businesses. And of course, uh, they ask me, what's your opinion? I give them a one-word New York answer. Forget about it. Cities, whether you're Oklahoma City or Los Angeles or San Francisco, you've got to focus on the essentials. You have to focus on building a middle class and, and having all this energy. And oddly enough, it is the arts and culture that are the greatest beneficiaries of all that activity. Arts and culture are built on the basis of a middle class, of mingling, of energy. Los Angeles today is the artistic center of California, not San Francisco. And I think for these very reasons, LA's reality, even its sometimes oppressive ugliness, its mishmash of industries, its lack of preciousness, seems to inspire art and culture from movies and novels to painting and music. So I think this is something that we need to focus on, is that Los Angeles becomes a great art center because of all the things that are happening here, not because we just target that one element. It's extremely important that we understand that it is the middle class, the children of immigrants, the children of the middle class who become the artists. It's, the, it's all the industry that comes here and creates the wealth, that creates the patrons of the arts that make cities great cultural centers. That was true in London, that was true in New York, and that's true today in LA. So fundamentally what we need to do is, is to look at what makes a successful city. And I want to leave you with some of this. A successful city must be a home not to ed just edgy clubs and museums and restaurants, and that's all fine, but it has to be a home for industry, has to be a home for small businesses, neighborhoods and schools that can regenerate themselves for the next generation. These are all the critical issues for Los Angeles and the critical issues for the urban future. Looking at some demographic numbers, and by the year 2030, this region will be the largest urban region in the United States. This is a region that is really the center of urbanism in America in the first half of the 21st century. So it is important not just for ourselves but for urbanity in general to say, can this megalopolis succeed? And I think we can, and I think there are, there are several elements to this. One, on a physical level. We need to d dedicate ourselves to building an archipelago of great urban spaces that retain the urban scale, but also the human scale that has always been critical to Los Angeles. We don't need to recreate New York or Paris. We don't need a Champs-Élysées. We don't need to build a Times Square. Every time I read those accounts in the paper, oh, we've got to build our own Times Square, I say, well, that's not what Los Angeles is about. We want to be a better city. We don't want to be a replica city. The great urban places I envision will be spread across a vast landscape. They'll be in Riverside and San Bernardino and Orange County and Ventura County and all the various neighborhoods of Los Angeles. To succeed, each part of that archipelago must be home to a lot of things. New industries, commercial centers, cultural institutions, new churches, new temples, new mosques, and all the institutions that bind a place together. 
And this Los Angeles, this archipelago, will have room for a vital downtown, but a downtown that functions differently than downtowns have traditionally. One, it will not be the primary business and cultural center. There is no such thing in Los Angeles, nor will there ever be. Downtown's greatness is not about tall buildings or whether they can build an ersatz city walk, but in its small centers, the amazing places in downtown, the garment district, the jewelry district, the artist area, Little Tokyo, Chinatown, Broadway, and most of all, these precious places we have here, like this library, City Hall, and the cathedral, the symbolic centers for learning, the political arts, and the religion. And they are the centers. Only downtown can be the center in this symbolic sense. That's why it's so appropriate that we're here at Zocalo, because Zocalo could only take place in downtown. Thank you very much. That was Joel Kotkin, author of The City, A Global History. The Los Angeles Public Library and Socolo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this monthly lecture series. Socolo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, Socolo is made possible by Semper Law Group, Washington Mutual, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit our website, socolola.org. Thanks for joining us.